The focus of your life impacts the worship of your life. What you focus on is what you worship. This message is the second in the series, Come Let Us Adore Him. The message is entitled, The Eyes of Worship. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. Would you join me this morning in welcoming our other campuses? Say good morning to the folks in Frederick and Clarksburg, the universities at Shady Grove. Good morning to everybody as we're into the month of December and starting, actually, not last weekend, started a new series of messages called Come Let Us Adore Him. I want to continue, and that theme will be continuing it throughout the month of December through Christmas time, talking about the, the concept, the idea, the practices of worship. What does it mean to be a worshiper of God? I want to talk to you this weekend about the eyes of worship. Last weekend, we talked about the heart of worship. This week, I'm going to share with you about the eyes of worship. Next weekend, I'll be talking about the feet of worship. And then the final message in the series, we'll talk about the hands of worship. Today are the eyes of worship. When you think about your eyes and think about sight, sight really is a wonderful thing. It's a great gift that God has given to us. Some of you, as I look around the room this morning, I recognize you have the same issue that I have, and that's I have a challenge with my sight. And so every morning, the first thing that I do when I wake up in the morning is I reach over to my bedside table and I grab my glasses so that I can see where I am. I will never tell you. I can't, can't figure out kind of my orientation without my glasses on. I need those to ab- enable me to see because sight is so valuable to navigate navigating life. It's extremely important that we understand that sight, the word sight and the concept of seeing goes beyond just the physical realm of your life. In fact, the Bible speaks to us very clearly about our spiritual sight, the ability to have spiritual vision, to see into the realm of the spiritual dimensions of life and to look at life as something more than just earthly in nature. I'm going to be sharing with you today actually two basic stories, a story in the Old Testament and a story in the New Testament that help us to understand the value, the importance of sight. Because if you don't have spiritual vision, if your eyes are not functioning well spiritually, you can't worship well. Your worship is going to be affected by what you see. What you look at is going to, be, is going to affect how you live. It's going to affect who and what you worship. If your eyes are on money, I mean, you know you're going to worship money, right? If your eyes are on a person, you're going to worship a person. If your eyes are on God, it affects, obviously, your worship of God. And so where your spiritual eyes are focused will determine the worship of your life and the way that you actually live your life. As I said, I'm going to talk to you about two basic stories. The first story I'd like to introduce to you is one you're familiar with. It's found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's a story of the wise men. Let me read you this passage here from the NIV, and then in a few moments we'll look at another illustration of this from the Old Testament. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi, that was wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We, what's the next word there? Say it with me. What's the word? We saw. Notice that. We saw. We saw his star when it rose and have come to. So what they saw affected their worship. Okay. What we saw, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. They replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the 
the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The story of the wise men. Traditionally, we talk about the three wise men. No place in the Bible is it mentioned in terms of uh, numerical uh, attribution of this. Uh, We think of three because there were three gifts presented, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but there was a group of wise men. Well, for the sake of tradition, we'll say there were three wise men. They came from ancient Persia, modern-day Iran, and they were astronomers. They were scientists of their day. They were the people that studied the movements that would happen in the skies, not so much just for prediction standpoints, but so many things they would learn about the universe. They were intellectuals of their time. They were the upper end of society, we might say. And here are these wise men or these magi, and they were out one night observing the fields, observe, I should say observing the skies, and looking and seeing what they could determine from it, and a star appeared that was quite unusual. As I'll talk about in a moment, these were not the only wise men living in Persia during this time. They were a group of a larger group of wise men that would have been living in Persia during this time. But these particular three saw something that no one else saw. They saw something that none of the other intellectuals of their time saw. They saw something that none of the other uh, scientists of their time saw. They saw something that arrested their attention and caused them to engage in a journey, a thousand-mile-plus journey on camelback or by foot. They're traveling from Persia, ancient Persia, into Jerusalem and ultimately uh, down south of Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And it all started by something they saw. It started by a vision they received. What they saw affected their life. Their spiritual vision led them to a place of worship. And I want to talk to you this weekend about how you improve your spiritual vision. How do you have the kind of vision that will make you a greater worshiper of God? Because I believe that all of us here today want to worship God more effectively. Would you agree with that? I want to be a greater worshiper of God. So how can I worship Him more effectively? I can't do that unless my eyes are properly focused, unless I'm seeing spiritually as I need to see, unless my blindness, if you will, has been removed and I'm able to actually envision who God is and what God wants to do in my life and in the world around me. So let me share with you four things today I think will help us to understand lessons from the wise men, a lesson we'll see in the Old Testament in just a moment about vision. The first thing, if you're going to effectively improve your spiritual vision, you must, you must make sure that you're looking in the right direction. The wise men saw the star that led them to Jesus because they were, they were looking in the right direction. They, they were looking up. Okay. They would have never seen the star had they been looking down. These men were looking up when other people were looking down. Other people were looking around, but these men were focused on heaven and they were not focused on earth. They were looking beyond their everyday pressures and challenges and problems of life. They were looking toward heaven. They saw the star because they were looking where stars are found, where stars found upward. And the same needs to be true for you and me. All too often, our vision, our, our ability to see who God is, is being affected because we're looking in the wrong direction. 
We're looking at the world around us. We're looking at our problems, and sometimes our problems seem very big, and our challenges seem very, very difficult, and the stresses of life begin to weigh in upon us, and our eyes go from heaven to earth. We begin to look at the stuff going on around us, and our vision of God is obscured by the problems we have in our lives. And what I would remind you of today is if you're going to see God, you've got to look where God is, and God is up. God's not down. You've got to look in the right direction. Part of what will help you to understand worship in a greater dimension, all of us to do so, is to realize that when we look at heaven and we gain a perspective of who God is, it changes our perspective of the earth we live in. If all you're looking at is earth, you'll never see heaven, but when you look at heaven, God gives you perspective for your earth. So there's this moment that allows us to see this impact that the star has on the wise men because they were looking in the right direction. Let me give you a few verses of Scripture that remind us of the importance of making sure we're looking in the right direction with our life, and then we'll apply this to our lives in just a moment in a, in a, in a new way. Psalm 105, verse 4, look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. It doesn't say look to your problems, does it? It says look to the Lord for His strength. Seek his face always. Isaiah 40, verses 25 and 26. To whom will you compare me, God says, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the... Don't look at the earth. Look where? To the heavens. Who created, who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me because you seek me. You're looking for me with all your heart. You're looking in the right direction. John 1, 35 through 37. John the Baptist with some of his disciples uh, point out when Jesus comes. Notice the scripture says the next day John, this is John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, what's the word there? Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So they, their following of Jesus started with their vision. They looked and saw him, and then they followed him. Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13. Look, Jesus says this, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says that even as we're living in our world today, our eyes need to be on heaven because he is coming back again. You will never worship the right way. You will never worship the right one effectively when you're looking in the wrong direction. Can I encourage you this morning in this Christmas season, and not just for this season, but for the rest of your life, to always stop as you begin your day for a moment and say, what am I looking at? Who am I looking at? What's the direction of my vision? Am I looking at heaven, or are my eyes focused on earth? And readjust your vision to heaven. See heaven, and earth will come in perspective for you. The second thing is you must do if you're going to improve your spiritual vision is to give God your full attention. You look in the right direction, and you give God your full attention. You can see and still not get the message. The wise men were not only looking in the right direction, they understood that God was speaking to them through the star. They understood there was a message in this. God had their attention. He was able to communicate a message to them because they were attentive to him. Think about it this way. Have you ever had a conversation with a person and they were looking at you, but you knew, you, you knew they really didn't get what you were saying at all? Their mind was somewhere else. They were looking in the right direction, but they were not comprehending the message. We've all had those moments before. It happens to us in relationships. 
Well, the same can happen with our relationship with God. We can, we can be looking in the right direction. We can come to church and we can even read our Bible and do all those things that represent a spiritual pursuit for our lives and still not really get it, not really understand what God's trying to say because God really doesn't have our attention. We're, we're kind of focused at some level, at least externally on God, but we're not really listening to God. So here's my question to you today. What does it take for God to get your attention? What does it take for God to somehow help you to realize there's a message that he's trying to communicate to your life? You know that there, there's a message that God's trying to give you today. God's trying to speak to you about something in your life today. And you may be looking in the right direction, but are you giving him your full attention? And sometimes in life, it takes some pretty radical things for God to really get our attention. You ever had a moment in your life where God just allowed some things to happen and suddenly he really had your attention? You had that, that moment before? Well, what we want to do is we want to give God our attention without having to have a crisis that results in us giving God our attention. We want to live with that attentive focus. Let me talk to you about Isaiah for a moment. We're going to go now to that Old Testament character. I said we're going to look at New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament's wise men, Old Testament is Isaiah. So let me talk to you about Isaiah in the Old Testament for a moment. He had a great vision as well. But this vision came after God got his attention. Let me read you the story in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Listen to this story. In the year... Isaiah speaking here. In the year that King Uzziah died. So what year was it? Not the number of year, but it was, it was what, what happened in that year? King Uzziah died. Okay, so there was a death that prompted something that's about to happen. In the year that King Uzziah died, what does Isaiah say next? I saw who? You've got to tie those two things together. In the year that King Uzziah died, it was in that year that I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah, in this, this passage, is describing an encounter he had with God. Now, Isaiah already had a relationship with God. This is not a moment that Isaiah suddenly has an initial relationship with God. Isaiah already had a relationship with God before this happened. Isaiah was most likely already a prophet at some level before this happened. But there was something that occurred in the year that King Uzziah died that changed Isaiah's life in a very significant way. Although he was already looking in the right direction, in that moment, God got his attention like he had never had Isaiah's attention before. Something occurred that arrested Isaiah at a very deep level. Let's talk about this death, the death of King Uzziah. King Uzziah was an interesting king of the Old Testament. He's one of the kings of Judah. He reigned for 52 years. Think about that, 52 years. He's a ruler in Judah. And by and large, King Uzziah was, was a good man. He had some problems toward the latter part of his life, but he did a lot of good things in Israel during his reign, or Judah, I should say, the southern kingdom during his reign, uh, prospered quite a bit. They were very safe and very secure. And so as soon as King Uzziah died, everything started to change because there's a change in administration and things are different. There's a different king coming on the scene. And so anytime there's a change of administration in the Old Testament, you see there were vulnerable moments that would happen. And so Assyria was a very strong power during this time, and Assyria was looking at this as an opportunity to invade Judah. 
And so suddenly now where for 52 years they'd had the reign of a a fairly good king and things had been pretty solid and secure, suddenly now that King Uzziah is gone, everything feels a little threatening. There's another group, there's the Assyrians that are about to potentially come in and assault Judah. They've already assaulted and done some work against the northern kingdom and so now they're, they're fearing for their own security. And so Isaiah said it was in the year that King Uzziah died. That is, it was some, there were some dark clouds around. There was a moment when I, 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 didn't, I didn't feel quite as secure as I'd felt before, and things were kind of threatening in the environment around me. Some things were being shaken up in my world. In the, key, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. My spiritual vision increased in the midst of a crisis. That is, Isaiah is saying, you know what, God really got my attention that year because some things were going on that I didn't quite understand how they were going to turn out. And I realized I needed God at a deeper level than I'd ever needed Him before. Can I ask you today, even though you may be looking in the right direction, does God have your full attention? What does it take for God to get your attention? Does God have to allow a crisis in your life to get your attention? Or can God get your attention through His Word or by the working of His Spirit or by the gentle nudges that He brings your way? What does it take for God to get your attention? But if you're going to be a worshiper of God, as Isaiah learned to be here, you need to give God not just be looking in the right direction, but you need to give God the full attention of your life. The third thing I'd like to share with you this morning, very important, I think, for our spiritual vision is to make sure that in the context of our vision, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. So often we use the word sight to describe something beyond physical sight. We use it to describe our understanding. When you say, I I see that, what you're saying is oftentimes when someone's sharing a concept, oh, I see that, okay, what you're saying is I understand that, I get it, okay? I understand what you're talking about. Well, in worship, it's important that we not only look in the right direction, because we're not looking at earth, we're looking at heaven, and we're giving God our full attention, but it's also extremely important that we make sure that the focus of our attention is in the right direction, that we're getting the message. Let's go back to the wise men for a moment. Here are these wise men in the midst of probably a group of wise men, but again, for the sake of today's message, we'll we'll affirm, let's say that there are three of them, that... As they're looking up into the sky, as many of the wise men, the magi of their day, would have, would have been doing, they saw the star, it arrested their attention, and it gave them a message, and they realized not just that this was a unique star, they realized what the star was about, or they realized more importantly who the star was about. They got the message. They realized this star is about Jesus. This star is about the king of the Jews. This star is about the one who will be born and has been born king of the Jews. And, of course, we know him as not only king of the Jews, but king of all kings. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 2, 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They realized this was not just any star. This was his star, his star. And the star of worship is none other than Jesus himself. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that is the focus of our attention. And good spiritual sight is always focused on Jesus. I'm going to show you why this is important. Because when you focus on Jesus in your worship, your worship is not just some kind of general worship. No, worship is all about honoring the one who is worthy of worship. And there's only one who is worthy of worship, and his name is Jesus. 
There's only one worthy. There's nothing else. Listen to me, folks. There's absolutely nothing else in life worthy of worship other than Jesus. Money is not worthy of your worship. A job is not worthy of your worship. A relationship is not worthy of your worship. Those things come and go. But there's one who has conquered and proven to be king of kings and lord of lords. There is only one who is worthy of your worship. And he wants to be the center of your worship. And and to worship him effectively, you have to fix your attention and fix your eyes on him. Because when you see Jesus, everything else radically changes in your life. Isaiah had this experience. Let's go back to Isaiah for a moment. And Isaiah chapter 6. Let me take you back to this story again. I'm going to read it one more time for you, at least one more time for you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So you got the context there. Something happened that prompted Isaiah to give God his attention. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings that covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. They were calling to one another. Read it together with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. So suddenly when Isaiah sees the Lord, he's, in, he's brought up into an atmosphere that is different from any atmosphere he's ever been in before. He's never been in an atmosphere like this because he's hearing the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You don't have the time to take you today to the book of Revelation, but you can go to the book of Revelation chapter 4. You'll see John, the apostle on the Isle of Patmos, when he's caught up in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he's brought up into the heavenly realms, and he sees, as he sees in the heavenly realms, he sees one who is seated on the throne, and the angels are crying, holy, 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 uh, who is worthy? None other is worthy than Jesus. So there's this moment that John has a similar experience to Isaiah as he encounters God in his holiness and power. In other words, the focus is on God. Let me tell you what worship is not about. Worship is not about you. Worship is about God. Worship is not about you. Worship is about the one who is worthy to be worshipped. Now, here's the beautiful thing. When you worship the one who is worthy of worship, the one who is worthy of worship takes care of you. Are you hearing that? Okay. But when you try to take care of you and you try to make you the center of your world, then you begin to worship you or worship the things that are about you, you you are circumventing the very way that God wants to work in your life. And so the reason we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and worship Him is because it's only in our relationship with Him that the things in our lives are put in order and and resolved in the way that they need to. So let me give you some things to think about regarding who Jesus is. In this Christmas season, I want to remind you of who Jesus is. I want to remind you uh, to get your eyes on Him. Amen? Okay, get your eyes on Jesus. Get your eyes, fix your eyes on the one who is worthy of worship. And I'll walk you through some things, some facts about Jesus. These are on your notes. I just gave them to you just as a quick reminder, a little bit of a side sort of digression a bit from the message, but I wanted to give them to you so you'll you'll help you to think about who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who who fulfilled hundreds of prophecies when he came. Isn't that beautiful to know? I've given you a few of them here. I'm not going to read them for you today, but he, and I could, there were many, many others that I could have given you, but he came and fulfilled prophecies that were hundreds of years old when Jesus Christ came, and they're prophecies that are still being fulfilled today that only Christ can fulfill. He's unique because no one else could do that except the Messiah. Okay. 
You can't fulfill things that were spoken hundreds of years uh, before someone comes. Actually, in some cases, thousands of years before uh, Christ came, and then He comes and fulfills the very prophecies that were spoken thousands and hundreds of years before His arriving. And then the second thing you need to know about Jesus is that Jesus is the one who lived when He came, and He, he lived and taught with divine authority and power. Listen to Mark chapter 1, 27. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? authority. He, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. So when Jesus came and taught, he was like no other teacher, because when he taught, he had a divine authority in the way that he spoke, and it was backed up with power. He would rebuke demons, and they would flee, and he would heal the sick, and it was just amazing de- declaration and demonstration of God's power through him. This is the one we worship. He's the one who laid down his life for our sins. Galatians 1.4 says, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present, the present evil age according to the will of God, will of our God and Father. So Jesus, they didn't take Jesus' life from him. He laid his life down. Don't ever think that they took Jesus' life. They didn't take his life. He laid his life down for you and me. He gave his life. See, Jesus, at any point in the situation when they were about to crucify him, Jesus could have dealt with the situation, correct? All he had to do was call on his Father and call down angels from heaven, and they could have dispersed the situation immediately. He's, he was all power, all authority. There's no, 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 no way that man could prevail against him, but he laid down his life for our sins. The fourth thing to, to remind you of in terms of who Jesus is, he's the one who rose from the dead. Can I get an amen right there, okay? There's no one like him. He rose from the dead. Luke, the doctor, wrote these words in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that former book was the Gospel of Luke. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented the suffering as he died on the cross for our sins. He presented himself to them as his disciples and gave, notice this, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So here, Luke, the doctor, he's a physician. He's not just any person without any kind of intellect. He's a man that is studied in the sciences. He's a man that makes sure he's, he's documenting things when it comes to information. And he says, I, I want to tell you about what I wrote to you. I want you to be reminded that he spent 50 days with his disciples, 40 days he spent with them. He appeared to them and reminded them of the fact that he was indeed alive. And he's the one who's promised to come back again. Aren't you glad about that as well? The very same chapter, chapter 1 of Acts. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives and he ascends up into heaven and the angels are there attending him as he's ascending and the disciples are watching him as he goes up and they're gazing up into heaven as Jesus ascends. Traditionally, there's a place on the Mount of Olives today that you can visit. It's called the Mount of Ascension, where Jesus is a church that's been built there to celebrate the very fact where Jesus supposedly rose back up into heaven again. But here's in that moment, here are these disciples looking up into the skies, and the, and the angels are saying these words to the men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Isn't that a beautiful promise? He says, don't worry, he's coming back again. So there's the promise. I want to encourage you when you think about your vision. Who do you worship? 
You look in the right direction. You give God your full attention and you make sure that your focus is not on you, but your focus is on who? None other than Christ. Your focus is on the one who is worthy of worship. And the fourth thing as I'm wrapping up here this morning is to make sure that you see your deepest need. To have spiritual vision, you've got to be aware of your need for God. After seeing the star, the wise men followed the star because they knew they needed to be in the presence of the king. That's why they followed the star. We've got to be in the presence of this king. They knew they needed this. There was something in them that says, we've got to be there. We've got to be where he is. We need him in our life. We need to worship him. And so their desperate need prompted their their dedicated journey to find Jesus. So their move to go to Jerusalem and ultimately to Bethlehem because they feel this, this passionate need inside of them. And one of the things that will keep us focused on Jesus and seeking Jesus and worshiping Jesus is the recognition of our need for Jesus. When you realize how much you need him, it causes you to focus on him, to seek him, to see him as you, are, as you, are, as you realize, I, I need him, I can't live life without him, then that ties you to him. It ties you in worship, in relationship with him. But it all comes back to how much do you need him? If you don't feel like you need him, then you'll never really worship him. And so to have good spiritual vision, you have to see your deep need. Isaiah understood this as well. Let me take you back to Isaiah Chapter 6, one last time. Everybody okay with that? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So this is crisis that goes on. It prompted Isaiah then to see something in a new way. High and exalted, seated on the throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, the the seraphims were, were, were there, and the cherubims were there, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices and the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And here's what I want you to see. Now, you got the picture here? Everybody with me so far? Isaiah sees God high and lifted up and the angels are there and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the, the thresholds of the temple, the foundations are shaking because of the presence of God's glory. And Isaiah's in this, this amazing moment. And I want you to see what happens next in verse number five. You would think he would shout hallelujah in a moment like that, don't you? But notice instead of shouting hallelujah, what does he say? Put it on the screen, verse five. Come on, put it up there. Woe to me, I cried. Now think about that for me. One translation says, woe is me. And then it goes on to say, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Let's stop there for a moment. So here's Isaiah in the midst of all this massive glory, the presence of God, and you would think, again, this would be a moment of great celebration and hallelujah and glory to God and all these things, but instead, in this moment, Isaiah says, oh no, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble because I'm in the midst of all this holiness. I'm not holy, okay? I'm in the midst of all this holiness. Woe is me. I'm ruined. I mean, I'm a dead man right now because all this glory is here and I'm not so glorious myself. I've got some issues in my life. And out of that context of his awareness of his own issues, the awareness of his own brokenness, the awareness of his own sins, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord Almighty. Notice what happens in verse number six. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
When it went with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. I love this passage. I love this. Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God. Man, it was an amazing vision. He was seated on the throne. The, the angels were crying, holy, holy, holy. But in this moment, suddenly it hit me. Oh, my goodness, I'm in trouble. I'm a messed up man. I have unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And if you have unclean lips, it means you have an unclean heart because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so you say, I'm, I'm in pro- I'm, I've got a problem here. I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm, I'm here with a holy God and I'm not holy. So I, I, I deserve judgment. I need, I need God to do something for me. And the Bible says that in that moment, God dispatched one of the seraphim to the altar with some tongs. He reached down and grabbed a coal off the altar and flew back over to Isaiah in the vision and touched Isaiah's lips. And suddenly his unclean lips became, became clean and his guilt was taken away. And then God said, who can I send? Who will go for me? And Isaiah's response was, hear my Lord. Send me. Now, prior to being touched by the coal from the altar, Isaiah could not have said, Here am I, send me. It was only after he'd been touched by God that he could then go and do what God had called him to do. What I want you to see here is this it was this out of this moment of worship. Isaiah's in this atmosphere of worship. It's out of this moment of worship that Isaiah becomes aware of the deepest need in his life. And that's part of what worship will do for you. It gives you vision to see things about yourself that you can't see otherwise. Because all of us have unclean places in our life. Can I get a little amen right there, okay? Everybody has unclean places in our Places we don't even realize. See, Isaiah didn't even realize this until he was in the presence of a holy God. He didn't realize how broken he was. He didn't realize how messed up he was until he's got a reference point. I'll give you an example of this. Have you, ever, have you ever washed maybe a, a white uh, sheet or something before and you thought it was really, really white and really, really clean until you held it up against a brand new sheet? Okay. Are you with me here? Okay. And you think, oh, I thought it was white. Okay. And it's not really clean. It's dingy, right? It looks clean until you hold it up to something that's cleaner. Are you with me? Okay. And sometimes we go through life, we think we're all clean until we get up beside God and realize, oh, I'm pretty dingy. There's a lot of dinginess in me. There's a lot of marks in me I didn't realize. And so Isaiah had that moment. And so he's, he's, before he's thinking, I'm okay with God. And, and now out of my worship experience, I'm realizing there's some dinginess in my life that I didn't even realize was there. There's some stuff in me that I need to deal with. And, and out of this context of, of, of need in his life, then in that worship environment, God says, now I've got you right where I want you because it's in the context of your worship. I can do something that you can't do for yourself And he brings the coal and he touches Isaiah's lips and he changes Isaiah in a way that he can be useful to God. That's why worship is so important because in worship, you and I are transformed, okay? In worship, you and I are cleansed. In worship, you and I are changed. In worship, as we worship God, something happens. See, worship is not just some ethereal way that you, you, you kind of go about life that has no meaning to your practical life. No, real worship changes you as a person. When you learn to worship, you'll be a better husband. When you learn to worship, you'll be, be, a, be, a, be a better wife. When you learn to worship, you'll be a better father. You'll be a better mother. When you learn to worship, you'll be a better worker. When you learn to worship, everything in your life gets better, okay? Because God works in people who worship, but you've got to have this vision of realizing that I worship because I have a deep need. 
for who God is. I can't live life without him. So what do we learn today from the message of both the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and the New Testament example of the wise men? We learn that if you're going to have good spiritual vision, you've got to be looking in the right direction. Amen? You can't see what you need to see if you're not looking where you need to look. So you've got to be looking in the right direction. You've got to look up. You can't look down and around. You've got to look up to God. And then you have to, the second thing you have to do is make sure that God has your full attention, that you're not distracted. You may be looking, but you're not really focused on God. You might be looking heavenward, but your mind's not where it needs to be. Your life is not organized around full attention to God. What, what is God trying to do right now to get your attention? And then to realize that the whole focus of our worship is not on us, it's on Him. We focus on Jesus. Our focus is on the one who is worthy of worship, the one who is worthy of our honor. And so we focus our attention on Him, and then when we focus our attention on Him, we become aware of our own deepest need in our life, and it's where the context of that worship, God begins to do something internally in us. Worship matters, amen? Worship transforms your life. You will never grow as a believer until you learn how to become, in greater measure, a person of worship. Would you bow your heads together with me as we pray? Father, thank you for your word this morning. We're grateful for the opportunity that we've had to study your word. We're thankful for the illustrations, the stories, the truth of your word found in the story of the wise man, the story of Isaiah. We pray you'll take these, mess- these truths today and let the message find its way deep into our heart. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to be transformed into worshipers of you. Help us to honor you with all that we do, with our hearts, with our lips, with our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me, and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. And you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out, and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God, and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus, I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. and You begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.
If you've prayed with a pastor today and made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we have some resources for you on our website. Just go to church-redeemer.org slash a new you. We pray that this message was a blessing to you.